Welcome to Traditionally Talking, the podcast of the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations. I'm your host, journalist Charles Parkiner, and in this podcast, we yarn with traditional owners from across the state about some of the amazing work being undertaken to care for and connect with country, build stronger culture and communities, and much more. The Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations acknowledges all traditional owners across the land now known as Victoria. We pay respect to their connection to land, waters, culture and law, and to Elders past, present and those who will lead in years to come. I'm joined today by the newly minted co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria, Gudijamara man, Reuben Berg. Reuben, thanks for coming on to Traditionally Talking. It's a pleasure to be here. Reuben, let's talk about self-determination in Victoria. For you personally, how does that actually look? Because it's a term open to interpretation, even misinterpretation. Yeah, absolutely. For me personally, when I think about self-determination... The biggest thing I think about is the idea that at the moment, the state government makes a whole lot of decisions that directly affect us as First Peoples, and I think that those are decisions that should be handed over to First Peoples. That's what self-determination looks like, is us making the decisions about things that affect us. That's still fairly broad, and it almost brings up some of the arguments or the counter-arguments that we hear and have heard about the voice. So when you're saying it impacts on First Nations people, that covers a raft of concepts and ideas. Can you be a bit more specific on that? Yeah, sure. I did say directly impacts on the First Peoples. Oh, I, I did notice that. There are things where the state will still have the sole responsibility that we'll need to have input on. But when I think, for example, about the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council, that's a mm. fairly straightforward example. That's a really powerful body and my family's had a long connection to that body and that was a, a step in the right direction of self-determination that the state put in place where they said... There are really important cultural heritage decisions that have to be made, including who should speak for country. Right. And the state government recognised that shouldn't be decisions they should make. So they established the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council, a group of traditional owners who have decision-making power under legislation. However, those members of the council are appointed by the minister. So there's still some oversight from government. If we really want that to be self-determined, then those members should not be chosen by the government. They should be chosen by, for example the First People's Assembly, that, that elected group should be the ones who says this should be this council who then decides about cultural heritage management. So that's a tangible example. We are talking, though, about traditional owners again, and that's a point that you and I have discussed many times over the years. Why is it just TOs when we are from all over the place and, of course, not forgetting our brothers and sisters from the Torres Strait Islanders? So where does self-determination come in for non-traditional owners within Victoria? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think in the area of cultural heritage management, I'm happy to talk about specifically traditional owners because yep. I think they have particular inherent rights to that space. But another aspect could be if we're talking about child welfare. If we're trying to talk about what's happening to all First Peoples in terms of child welfare in this state, that's a decision that impacts on all First Peoples, not just traditional owners. And so that's absolutely a space where we'd want to make sure that 
all First Peoples are participating in that conversation about the decisions there. What benefits, though, does it really bring? Because there are the naysayers out there that saying, well, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You know, what's good for white children is also going to be good for black children. So what benefits does it bring to the Aboriginal community to have that degree of self-determination, to have that voice heard? Yeah, I mean, I think all you have to do is look at where the statistics are now. This is a system that's been put in place where non-Aboriginal people are making decisions about Aboriginal children, and this is the situation we find ourselves in. If we want to get different outcomes, you know the saying, if you want a different outcome, you've got to have a different way of doing things. If you Mm. keep doing things the same way, you're going to get the same outcome. So we need to find a different way of doing things, and I think it would be fairly obvious to everybody, if you just think about it for a moment, that the people who are most affected by something if they get a say in the solutions to what difficulties they might have, you're going to have a much greater chance of getting solutions when you actually have them involved in those decisions. Broad-based question, do you believe that increased self-determination for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands and Victoria can have a direct, and I'll specify direct impact, on some of those targets in closing the gap, which simply are not being met? Many of them are actually going backwards. Yeah, I think it can have a direct impact on those things. I think that there are solutions out there that people working in this space know what will make a difference. And when we empower those local communities to have the decision-making to actually implement those things, there are lots of examples across the globe that we see when there is that power handed over to the people most affected by something, that's when we get the outcomes. But the other one of that too is what we're doing right now is not working. Mm. So we need to find a different way to do it. How could this be worse to do this another way in a way that's empowering First Peoples? I can only see upside in in doing this. That then brings up the question, how can it work? I mean, obviously we see that the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria, a democratically elected body of traditional owners, but by Victorian Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders. But but how would you see that self-determination bodies or bodies that contribute to self-determination would actually be, and we're not talking here about TOs because we will come back to them in a minute. So I think when we talk about the powers that the state has, we want them transferred away from the state, so given over to bodies that are the experts on those areas. Yep. We've got Lots of fantastic organisations out there already. So you're talking Vacho and things like that, right. They're they're the experts on these Mm. things. I I don't think that we as Assembly members should be coming in and saying, we're the experts on child protection, we're the experts on justice. We've got organisations out there that are the experts on those things. What I think we should be trying to do as the Assembly and what we're aspiring to be doing is taking the government's role in some of those things and removing that from the government so that we as a community, as a First Peoples community, have greater oversight of that and then let those experts do what they should be doing. Do you see that that's actually being enacted to some degree in any specific areas? I know that a lot of the traditional owner groups, uh, Glawak, Tungarung and many others, are working with state government bodies for bushland management and wetlands management. Apart from those, do you see any specific areas where it is actually working? Yeah, I, I think the land management and the water management is one of the areas that it's the easiest to kind of wrap our heads around yeah. some of the progress that's already being made. But I know that there's lots of really important conversations happening at the moment around child welfare of ensuring that we are empowering groups like VACA to actually have a greater say in how that all works. So there are little bits and pieces of it happening. And it's one of the complexities of this space we're in right now where everybody is talking about treaty and treaty is seen as a way that we can navigate some of this stuff, balancing that with... There's stuff right now that needs to be done as well. 
So there are these initiatives happening to get greater power placed into our peoples and treaty will just be a greater way of kind of cementing some of those things. What do you think are some of the priorities? From, from the Assembly standpoint? From the Assembly standpoint, and please feel free to throw in your own personal perspectives as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. But I think from an Assembly perspective, what we should be prioritising is putting in place the structures to remove from government the powers that they hold. So one way you could look at treaties, you could say, okay, well, at the moment... There's a policy around justice, and we don't like that policy. We think it's a bad policy. Let's get a treaty up to change that policy from policy X and now make it policy Y. Now, that just by the way, that becomes part of the statewide treaty rather than traditional owner-specific treaties. That's right. Yep. So right. That's, some, that's a way you could tackle treaty. My personal view is that's a short-sighted approach to treaty. What I think is much better is to say, okay, here's a decision that gets made about justice – Let's make that decision now transferred over to First Peoples and so that we can continue to change that and make it whatever we want in the future. We're not having to go back and renegotiate that. We're actually transferring the decision over to First Peoples, not changing the specific policy. We can then go ahead and change the policy to be whatever we think it should be based on our experts and our communities and their recommendations. Do you think, though, that in those situations, because it sounds to me like you're talking, well, we're going to take full responsibility away, but there still has to be some relationship with the state government? Because after all, if we're talking justice, obviously then those policies that are being developed by traditional owners or Victorian Aboriginal people are going to rely on an infrastructure that's established by the state government. So how do you see those partnerships playing out? Yeah, and I think it is really important to stress that the kind of the vision from my perspective is not to create an entirely separate bureaucracy right. that's independent from government. It's really about taking the higher level decision-making powers away from government, but that could be decisions that we then make and say, well, the government, you need to do this now. It could be instructing the government about how they're going to do things in a better way. But there's absolutely still going to be those areas where the government is the primary decision maker, where it's correct that they still hold that decision making power because their decisions don't just affect First Peoples directly. We are part of that impact, but not the only impact. Those are the things where we as an assembly should be advocating to have a voice on those things, to have a guaranteed seat at the table, to have input on those decisions but also play a key role in making sure the government's accountable for whatever measures they put in place, they're actually delivering on those things. You mentioned justice as a prime example, and you've mentioned in reference to childcare and VAR's health. What are the other areas that you see are an absolute priority within Victoria that self-determination start to be played out? Those are some of the big ones that we've already mentioned. I think if we're looking at particularly statewide treaty those would probably be the biggest ticket things. The health, justice, uh, education is, is probably another one that's right up there as well. I, I think that's going to be one of the challenges as an assembly to work out how we do prioritise That would be a difficult things. one because you can't really sort of set up or you wouldn't really want to set up you know, special schools just for Aboriginal kids because you lose so much work that's gone on over the years. Absolutely. So... Yeah. solution <laughs> and it's, and that, but it's it's really about the government currently has a whole lot of programs yeah. with the Kessos with a whole lot of strategies around education those are just strategies that should be developed and led by first peoples not led by the state and then state schools can implement them that's fine but the ultimate decision about those strategies shouldn't come from the state. Let's get on to the subject that's scary for non-Aboriginal people. And it's something you, you mentioned earlier on, cultural heritage, because that does scare a lot of non-Aboriginal people. Explain how you see self-determination working out in a cultural heritage sort of scenario. We already have a fairly strong and robust system around cultural heritage that does empower 
traditional owners here in Victoria through the registered Aboriginal party system yep. where they are required to be consulted and engaged. But the perception on a lot of that is they're required to be engaged to kind of minimise harm. There's still going to be harm done to our cultural heritage because these inevitable projects that are going ahead. I think when we look to the future in terms of empowering traditional owners, they'll be able to have a more confidence in having a say in those things that they can say, well, no, this site here is actually so important that you shouldn't knock it over to build a housing development. This should be protected and we'll work together to find a better place where this housing development should go. Do you think we can learn anything from what's happened in Western Australia where the government had to back down very, very quickly due to backlash on the recently put in place act? I think it's a different landscape over there in, in WA. I think we've already had these types of legislation here in Victoria that does empower traditional owners to have a say on their cultural heritage. So I think in that regard, I'm not too concerned by their change of policy. Mm. What I think we always need to be communicating though is that when we talk about value and cultural heritage in the landscape, that shouldn't be seen as something that only benefits traditional owners, that only benefits First Peoples. We need to be doing a better job, I think, of showing the broader Victorian community that this is something they can feel a part of, that they can celebrate, that the fact that they might have a scarred tree just around the corner from where they walk their dog, that should be something they're proud of as well. And the more we can have those conversations to show that Aboriginal people being in control of cultural heritage will mean that more of it is protected, there'll be more that they can engage with and celebrate, and that brings benefits to everybody. Therein lies the rub, though, Ruben, and that is communicating with the broader community. We've seen in so many initiatives, whether it's during the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commissioner days, the early days of the Assembly, during COVID and everything, how do you communicate these key messages out there to the broader community? And bear in mind, we're talking about all of Victoria now. Because we don't want to go back to the bad old days where farmers are just ploughing up their middens because they're scared that it's going to be a cultural heritage sort of plan thrown right on them. They're going to lose their property. It's going to have to be a huge part of self-determination where we reassure the rest of the state. Well, we have thought about that to some degree at least. I know that from an Assembly standpoint, we see it as our role to make sure that we're bringing along the entire First Peoples community here in Victoria and as part of that also providing some support to the broader Victorian community. But under the treaty negotiation framework, which Mm. we've signed with the state, the state has obligations to negotiate treaty. All parties have obligations they need to meet, the minimum standards. And one of the state's minimum standards is that it's doing work to ensure that it is educating and informing the broader Victorian community about what's happening in treaty, about the benefits of treaty. So that's going to be something that we'll just need to keep the state in check with to make sure they are meeting those obligations because they're a much better place to share those messages broader uh, than we are as the Assembly. Without meaning to put you in an awkward position, but I'm happy to do so, is the state government really doing all it can do, even at these early stages, to broadcast that message? Because there's conflicting messages out there even about treaty now. Right now, I would say they probably aren't, but they haven't signed up to the minimum standards yet, so we can't (laughs) keep them to those obligations. But I assure you that once we sign them up to that and they're there and they're committed, we'll be making sure that they abide by that. And we're going to have this amazing treaty authority established soon, and it's also going to be their job to make sure that they're abiding with those things. What do you think are some of the key concerns from the broader community when it comes to self-determination in all these broad brushstrokes that we've talked about right now, and we've only laid down a couple of them? What are some of the key concerns that you think would need to be addressed within that broader Victorian community? Yeah, I think rightly or wrongly over the years, there's been this perception that when you hand over 
whole bucket of money and power to Aboriginal people, there's some corruption that happens. Sure. And somehow that seems to ignore the fact that there's corruption in every segment of society and that we see examples of that corruption within non-Aboriginal communities no, every that's single con- day. That's a convenient oversight. Now, come on. <laughs> <All right. laughs> but I think... We, we as the Assembly and we as an Aboriginal community are always very keen on accountability. Yeah. You've got to be able to be accountable for what you do. And so making sure that if we are have, having authority sitting with a particular group of people, that they're accountable for that, they're transparent about that, and that will hopefully alleviate some of those concerns, those fears that people might have about some level of corruption that might occur somehow, more so in the Aboriginal community than in the broader community. Which So you're talking about full transparency of operations and financial management, really, aren't you? Yeah, you definitely need to have that level of accountability and that transparency and accountability not just in a financial standpoint but a cultural accountability as well that when you walk down the street and you see a member of the community they're going to feel like they can have a chat to you and know that you're accountable for what you're doing that you're not just doing things behind closed doors all the time. Ruben Berg thanks so much indeed for coming on to Traditionally Talking. My pleasure.